to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Have you ever wished you could start over with a brand new life? Do you ever think you can't shed certain labels that describe who you are? Do you feel scared to launch a new career, move to a new place, or start living a different kind of lifestyle? If you answered yes to any of those questions, today's episode is for you. Sometimes people think that reinventing yourself is a sign of a midlife crisis, but quite often it's a sign of personal growth. It means you're learning, changing, and willing to try something new. Not that long ago, I lived in a cabin in the woods in rural Maine, and I worked 40 hours a week as a therapist. Now, I live on a sailboat in the Florida Keys, and I work as an author and the editor-in-chief of Very Well Mind. I also used to hate public speaking, like I was so shy that I rarely ever spoke in school. But now I get paid to give speeches for a living, and I get to host this podcast. I suspect that you have been thinking about changes in your life, too. Some of them might be voluntary, like maybe you think that you might want to move to a new city. But maybe you've been through some changes that haven't been 100% your choice, like a divorce. Reinventing yourself can be scary, but it can also be exciting. It can be a wonderful opportunity to reset some of your habits, to swap out your inner circle, and start fresh at building the kind of life that you want to live. My guest today knows a thing or two about reinventing himself. I'm talking to John Oates. He's a Hall of Fame musician who's best known for his role in the duo, Hall & Oates. Since 1972, they've sold over 80 million albums, scored 10 number one records, and had over 20 hits that have landed on the top 40 charts. Aside from being known for his music, John was also known for his mustache. But as you'll hear him talk about today, at some point in his career, he decided to shave the mustache and completely reinvent himself. Some of the things he talks about today are what therapy taught him, the steps he takes to manage his mental health now, and what he gained by reinventing himself. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. It's the part of the show where I'll give you my take on John's strategies for reinventing yourself and building mental strength. So here's John Oates on how to reinvent yourself. John Oates, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Hi, Amy. Nice to talk to you. You as well. So obviously you've had this iconic mustache for a really long time. You shaved it off, uh, I don't know, how many years ago? It was either 89 or early 90. I can't remember. And then it, we hear it's making a comeback. Well, as you can see, I'm, I'm working on it. It's, uh, I think by November 1st, when November hits, it's going to be in, in its uh, full uh, facial glory. Yes. So... Uh, your mustache is probably the most famous mustache in the world. You have a Facebook page dedicated to it. There's cartoons about it. You just Google it. And that's like the first thing that comes up. If you were to Google even the word mustache is you. Yes, it's pretty funny. I I, uh, I like to ironically um, describe myself as the uh, patron saint of facial hair, <laughs> uh, with the, especially with the younger generation. Although I don't know if uh, Tom Selleck or, or um, Burt Reynolds or uh, a number of other people might agree, but anyway, I'll take I'll take uh, I'll take it if uh, 
if everyone wants to um, give me that title, that's okay. And obviously, that's not all that you're known for. You've well, had, thank you. Thank you right? Very, yeah. <laughs> You've yes. had, yeah. I read you have like 19 songs that made it into the top 10 charts in some way, shape, or form. Like 19, that is amazing. A whole notes has an amazing career, and uh, we've had incredible commercial success. Uh, and it's been, you know, it's been all over 50 years of recording. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a miracle that it's actually happening. It's been happening, and still still to this day is uh, you know we still tour together and all that. So, um, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing uh, to be to be have have this kind of uh, career and and to be able to still be active and create um outside of of uh, the, the, the group so to speak yeah and you're not done yet you're still coming up with new music right even close yeah how did you guys stand the test of time it's interesting uh it's a you know everyone i think the, the uh everyone wants to know how a duo kind of you know uh, how how it kind of fun- what's the dynamics and how it functions it's because it's very you know it's 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 similar to people who have a you know romantic relationship or a marriage or whatever or a professional you know uh, partnership. It's a uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Every every du- you know duo so to speak has its own way of working. You know and even and you know when you look at songwriting duos. You know you look at uh, Leonard and Leonard and McCartney. You know Jagger and Richards. You know uh, Ira and George Gershwin. I mean goes back in you know. Uh, you know, anyway, it's 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 always an interesting dynamic. I think Daryl and I are very different as people, um, but at the same time, we have a lot of similarities in our um, in our musical vocabulary because we listened to the same music growing up as kids, even before we knew each other. So we had a, a real commonality when it came to roots, the roots of what we could draw from to create something new. Um, and I think that's the glue that kind of holds it together. Um, and we, uh, we we live our lives in completely different ways. I think we're we have different uh, kind of philosophies and different um, you know, different goals for for what we want to achieve in our life. So uh, we don't step on each other's toes in that regard on the personal side, and we keep it professional. And um, so so far, it's worked. Interesting. My podcast producer works in the music industry when he's not working on this podcast. And we were just having this conversation uh, before you joined about whether it would be more difficult to be in a duo versus a band versus a solo artist and the complications that must come when there's two of you and yet you still have very successful careers as solo artists, yet you have to work together and figure out that without competing. I don't know. Well, it's very unique that we are able to um, to, to really have individual solo careers. Not Not many but people in duos or groups are able to achieve that. So that's that's definitely a, a unique accomplishment. I'm, I'm real proud of that as well. As you should be. And something else I read about you is that while so many other artists back in the day were getting into drugs and alcohol, you managed to avoid that, which is probably one of the reasons why you're still able to talk to us and still able to come out with new music today. Yeah, it has a lot to do with that. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of, uh, a lot of contemporaries go by the wayside for any number of... Uh, reasons like that. And, uh, it's sad. And, um, you know, I, I just have to credit my uh, upbringing. You know, I had really solid parents, uh, very, very, um, solid, you know, lower middle-class working parents who, who, um, instilled in me, I guess, a, a good work ethic and also, uh, you know, some, some basic common sense. But how'd you avoid it when so many other artists were, were dabbling in drugs and alcohol and developing serious addictions? Was there times when it was tempting to uh, yeah, I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. There was a lot of fun along the way, you know, in the 70s and 80s. 
being on tour all over the world. Um, but at the same time, my, you know, my personal feeling was I've always wanted to be a musician. I always wanted to be my life's work. I never wanted to compromise that in any way. So I had to, I said to myself, well, and especially as I saw, you know, as I said earlier, as I saw various other musicians and creative people, contemporaries kind of fall by the wayside, I, I thought to myself, if I'm, if I want, I want to do this for the rest of my life, I have to keep, I have to keep it together up here. And I have to keep it together here. And um, so that was, you know, that was more important to me than, than the uh, kind of, uh, you know, temporary uh, bliss or fun of, uh, of, you know, getting high and, um, you know, getting stoned or whatever. And how did you keep it together from a mental health standpoint? As you're becoming famous, you're on the road all the time and you have this recognizable voice, this recognizable face. He probably couldn't go anywhere for a really long time without mobs of people. How do you hold it together? People ask me that all the time. All the guy, all the people I work with here in Nashville, every time we go in the studio, they go, you're one of the most normal rock stars I've ever met. Um, I don't know. You know, here again, I'll go back to my parents. I'll go back to my upbringing. And, uh, you know, the other thing about, you know, not, not being mobbed or not, you know, not having to deal with that sort of thing is I've always lived in places where people don't care about celebrities. Um, I've lived in New York City. I was born in New York City. Um, I, I lived in Aspen, Colorado, which is full of stars. Um, and people see them all the time on the streets and the shops. And now I live in Nashville, which is also full of stars. So it's not that big a deal. I mean, you know, you go to Whole Foods and I see, uh, I see one. I see one of the Everly Brothers, like walking around buying bananas or whatever. Um, so you know, it's not uh, it's not unusual, and I think it's a it's a very comfortable place to be when you're you know in a, in a especially Nashville when it's a music centric city. The whole you know city revolves around music. Um, so uh, yeah, it's very comfortable and cool, and I keep a low profile. Plus, I'm short, and so I can kind of zoom drive around, and people don't seem to notice me. Interesting. So let's go back to back in the day when I understand you went to see a therapist, you shaved your mustache. Can you shave that, share that story with us? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a lot of stories right there. Okay. Um, um, if you want to go back to the shaving of the mustache thing, uh, by the end of the 80s, a lot of things had changed um, for me personally and also you know, career-wise. And you know, I got divorced. Um, our, our manager, our longtime manager had left and gone on to to work at, at, you know, one of the big record companies. Uh, so in a sense, I think professionally, Daryl and I were, you know, kind of floundering a little bit and not really having a lot of direction. And with, you know, with being divorced and, and I just was, I, I got to the point where I felt like a caricature of myself. It's hard to describe, but, you know, just this, this thing about the mustache and all, you know, and the MTV videos, you know, really uh, reinforced that kind of, you know, jumping around and wearing silly clothes and, you know, that, that 80s kind of, uh, well, dare I say, goofy kind of, um, you know, approach to a lot of things. Uh, and I, I felt I was changing personally. And to me, the mustache represented that guy. It, and I didn't want to be that guy. And it was kind of a, it was a rebellion in a way. Um, and I remember what happened. I, you know, we were in Tokyo to do a, a tribute to John Lennon. I think on the 10th anniversary of John Lennon's death. And um, there was a lot of big stars and Lenny Kravitz, Miles Davis, a whole bunch of people. And um, we had uh, done the show and it was for Yoko Ono was there, of course. And um, I came back to the room and the next day we were flying, flying home 
And I went back to my room in Tokyo and I looked at myself in the mirror and I, I just took the razor and just shaved it off. It was like a, it was like a rebirth. It was almost like a, <laughs> it was almost like a butterfly coming out of its cocoon. You know, um, I just felt it was time. I, I want, didn't want to be that guy anymore. And I knew that something was going to be different going forth into the nineties. I knew that Daryl and I wouldn't be working together quite as much. I knew that we had, we had done what we had done in the eighties and there was no way to replicate it because the only way to go in my, and this is just me talking. I felt like after the, the tremendous success that we had, the only way to go was down. And I didn't want to like try to, you know, try to, you know, desperately cling on to this eighties pop star thing, because I knew it was just transient. It was, it was something that was of the moment and it was never going to be replicated. And so rather than try that and be frustrated or disappointed or whatever, I just said, I'm going to do something else. And that's when a lot of other things changed, uh, and which leads to the, I guess, the therapy part. Um, I had gone to um, I'd gone to couples therapy with my wife when we were we were contemplating what we you know things weren't going well. You know, we'd been together for about eight years, and um, she's a she's a great gal, really great gal. She she wanted her life to go in one direction. I wanted my life to go in another direction. We we just it wasn't it wasn't the right time for us at the time. So we, you know, in a, in a kind of, you know, just to, to kind of try, I, you know, I, I agreed to go to this couple's therapy and it was a, it was a dead end street. It just wasn't going to happen. And we eventually separated and, you know, proceeded to, to, you know, to get divorced. Um, but afterwards, um, I had some issues where, you know, a lot of realizations about my professional uh, situation. And I ended up going back to that same therapist. And it was funny because he kind of smirked when I showed up because he said, I had a feeling you were going to come back. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And um, in fact, I have a chapter in my book that I wrote and um, the chapter is entitled Guys Like You because that's what he said to me. He goes, I know a lot of guys like you. He says, I see a lot of guys like you. He says, and you know, you're, you're, you're going down this road. And if you continue down this road that you're on, now that you're actually being truthful with me, which of course I wasn't during the couple's therapy part. Um, and I finally accepted that maybe I could get something out of this. Uh, and um, he said, if you continue doing what you're doing, I know exactly, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you. He said, so it's your choice. You have a, you're at a crossroads. You have a chance to reinvent yourself, reinvent your life. And um, I bought into it. And I never thought I would buy into therapy. I was never believed in it. I didn't think it could help me. I thought, you know, I, you know, like a lot of people or a lot of guys, I think in particular, uh, since we're talking about November, you know, a lot of guys want to just hold it all in and, you know, kind of do it themselves or, or ignore it. Whatever. But anyway, the point being is that I, um, we began to do things like visualization exercises, talking about dreams and talking about trying to, I think, you know, to, to really sum it up because it was obviously very, very, you know, intense. It was, it was to visualize how I, what I could how I could go forward in my life and what it was going to take. And it was a bunch of exercises. And it's kind of interesting because one of the things that, that I came up with, you know, which he kind of led me toward, he said he wanted me to visualize where, you know, where I wanted to live and remove the people and the toxic things in my life that were preventing me from getting there. And so I began to visualize myself I had a little condo in Aspen, Colorado that I used for, um, you know, when I went out there for the team. And um, so I didn't envision myself in, a, in the condo. I envisioned myself in a log cabin in the mountains with a dog. 
a brown and black dog. And I envisioned myself sitting on the porch and I envisioned people coming toward me. All these people in my life, these business people, these lawyers, these accountants, these toxic people that I was very, very, you know, very much involved in, coming toward me down this long road and coming past me. And as they passed me, they disappeared. And I, I did that for quite a while. And as it turned out, uh, after I moved, finally moved to Colorado um, and met my future wife, we built a log, log cabin in the woods and I had a brown and black dog. And I, it, it's kind of unbelievable to really, you know, tell the story. And those people were all gone. They, I wasn't involved with them in any way. And that's when I started my life over again. Um, and I basically recalibrated, you know, who I would be. I lived in the mountains. I, I sold everything I owned. I had a bicycle. I didn't have a car for two years. Um, I rode my bike. I skied. I hiked in the mountains. Um, I surrounded myself with a bunch of, <laughs> you know, Rocky Mountain dirt bags who uh, didn't care whether I played guitar or sang or not. It was like, can you keep up, you know, kind of thing. And so it was, and when I say dirt bags, I mean that in the nicest possible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, just, um, you know, live the life of a, a mountain, a mountain man. And uh, it changed everything. And then of course, you know, we did build a house. We got married, we had a kid. And uh, throughout the nineties, that's the life I lived. And there was really hardly any music involved. Wow. So that is quite a story of how you took a break, stepped back and, and did something completely different. And I happen to be a therapist, so I'm glad to hear that you found therapy helpful. What do you think would have happened had you not done that? What kind of path were you headed down before this? Well, he, he, he laid it out. He said, he said, a bunch of old bunch of guys who, who, got, who have a lot of money, you know, they, they have no relationship, you know, they live um, live vicariously through, you know, hookers and maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, maybe, you know, just, uh, you know, kind of using not, not so much their accomplishments, but using, you know, uh, the things they can buy to uh, as, uh, you know, as a way to kind of ease the pain. And uh, that's what, you know, he told me. And I just said, I'm not going to do that. That's not going to be me one way or the other. Um, so it was interesting. It was very interesting. And I'm curious, what happened to your identity as a musician when you are living in this cabin in the woods and you're not doing as much with music? What was your mental health like during that time? It was fantastic. Really? <laughs> it was freeing. Um, I literally, I mean, I would go, um, my thing was, uh, my thing was, the, you know, I did, I did these incredible mountain uh, experiences, you know, backcountry treks through, wilderness and you know i'd get up at the crack of dawn and it would be howling snowstorms and i'd go out be the first person on the ski lift ski by myself and while i was in one of the things that i did um which actually evolved into a song that i wrote was um i remember i would it was so peaceful and so centering i would i would be out there in the in the worst possible weather possible no one wanted to be out there and i'd be out there and i'd be sitting on the lift and I'd be looking at the trees in this howling snowstorm. And I would visualize this circle. And I called it the circle of three with myself, my wife, and my son. And I actually wrote a song called Circle of Three, which I recorded in the early 2000s. Um, and I, that, was my, that was kind of my mantra. It was kind of the way I centered myself. And um, I just thought that, you know, now I have this family. I have this 
this core that I can, you know, that, that loves me and that I love them. And it is, you know, it's unsha- it's unshakable bond that I've created. And so um, that was my, you know, that was where I, I derived my, my personal uh, power and my, and it was meditative, I guess, in a way. And what happened to your identity as a person now? You, you shaved this iconic mustache. You are no longer living this life where you're touring the world like you were before. Did you have this, any sort of identity crisis of like, who's John Oates now? No, I really didn't. I was very happy. I was really, really happy. And that happiness um, set the tone. It, it enabled me to have this foundation where I could go back to music, which I did. As the 90s wore on, I started to, you know, get back into it a little bit. I, I met some musicians in, in, in Colorado. I began to work with them. I started to, uh, I never recorded a solo album. It's something that I had put on the back burner. And I thought, you know, now I can do that because I kind of can discover who, who I am now. And um, that led me to uh, move to Nashville. Uh, and my wife and I moved to Nashville and uh, our son went off to school and um, I started over again. And uh, it was really a, um, I don't think I could have done that had I not spent that time in Colorado disengaging from that, that other guy. And did you tell anybody that you went to therapy back then? No. Told my wife. Not my new one. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. When did it come to be that you started talking about it now? Because I feel like obviously a lot has changed over the years where people are much more forthcoming to talk about mental health, but not that long ago, nobody really wanted to talk about if they'd been to see a therapist. Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's in the air. It's, it's, it's of the times. Um, I noticed it in sports uh, and entertainment in general that a lot of people who are pretty well known are being much more uh, outspoken and much more uh, open about it. Um, especially with the younger generation. I mean, you know, you, it's, you hear about it all the time. And to be honest with you, had we not uh, got involved with Movember, which I'm really proud to be part of, I don't know if I'd be talking. Obviously, I probably wouldn't be talking to you about it. Uh, it's just something that's part of my life. And I was very open about it when I wrote my book, um, Change of Season, available on Amazon. Absolutely. Well, we'll link to it. How's that for <laughs> um, But anyway, uh, I, I was very open about it in the book. Uh, talked about it there and I just left it. You know, I, I you know, with, uh, here again, it's a the, the cliche. I am an open book in a sense. You know, if you really want to know anything about me, you can read that book. And there's a lot in there that's, that's very, you know, here again, uh, where, you know, kind of wearing my, uh, wearing my heart on my sleeve to a certain degree. And have you gone back to therapy since then? No, no. And the physical transformation. So you shave your mustache, did that help you get going on the road of saying, all right, I'm, I'm this new person. And then therapy sort of kicked it into another gear where you say, yeah. I'm just not going to change how I look, but I'm going to change where I live and how I live. Well, well the, 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 when I took the mustache, when I shaved the mustache, I looked different. I felt different. I looked different. I looked at myself differently. It was a, it was, it was symbolic. Okay. Look, it's, it's kind of like a shedding of the skin. You know, it's similar to uh to kind of, uh, I guess, what the Native Americans did when they, they would go on a vision quest, you know, and then they would come out, you know, come, go from a child to a man or whatever it might be. Um, that's what it felt like to me. It felt like I was shedding my skin and I had the ability now to, to be whoever I, I wanted. What was the reaction that people had to you when you shaved your mustache? Did they think you were just having this temporary crisis? Everybody, when I walked into the airport that morning, you know, with, with the whole ensemble band and everything. I remember Miles Davis came up to me 
And Miles Davis, the heavy cat, I want to tell you, he, he, he um, first of all, he said to Daryl, I remember what he said to Daryl. He, he went up to Daryl, he said, I tell my hairdresser, I want my hair to look just like Daryl. <laughs> and then he came up to me and he got right in my face. And he had these bloodshot red eyes and he came right in my face and he went like this. He just looked at me and he went, that's all he did. <laughs> <laughs> And then after that, the people around you did what? What was the reaction that you got from most people? Well, I left. I, I that was it. That was it for for me and Hall and Oates and uh, all the people that surrounded with Hall and Oates. I was gone. I was gone. I I left. I left New York City. I sold everything I had. I had you know I had a lot of stuff: um, apartments, house in Connecticut, airplane collection of vintage cars. I sold everything, and all I had was a bicycle and a little tiny condo in Colorado. And I moved into the condo and I rode my bike to town and I went shopping and put my food in a basket and went out into the mountains. And that's it. So you had this complete reset in your life, not just physically, but also, I guess, not just how your physical appearance looked, but where you lived, what you did, how you lived your life. Mm -hmm. And then you got back into it. And and now here we are today where you did get involved in the Movember campaign. How did that come about? It came about through my social media folks. Um, they reached out to me and they said, would you be interested? And I said, yes, absolutely. Uh, and, they, and this was back in the summer and said, well, you better get that stash going. <laughs> and uh, so in July, I kind of started to let my free flag fly a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, we're good. And by, by November 1st, this, this baby's going to be rocking hard. So, yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah, so it, it, that's how that's how it came about. I I've been involved in a lot of charitable things. My wife and I did a did a big uh, kind of uh, on internet telethon for Feeding America a year ago, and um, you know I've always tried to uh, participate in local charities and everything. And I just thought it was a it's just a, such a worthwhile thing to get involved in. And here again, being the patron saint of facial hair, I thought it was just a, the first thing I said when I met the folks in London last week. Um, I said, how come you didn't call me sooner? I don't get it, but uh, but I'm here now and that's good. Yeah, that's a, that's a, the fair question. Why wouldn't they have called you sooner? <laughs> um, but in terms of then talking about men's health and encouraging mental health, especially, why do you think this is so important that we are talking about this right now? Because I think a lot of men still to this day are reluctant to um, reveal and face certain things. Um, you know, and here again, you know, even going to the doctors for checkups. Men tend to not be quite so thing. My wife, of course, you know, she, she's she got me on a very good schedule and she keeps me, you know. So um, I think it's just, it's it's good to, I think perhaps if people know and are aware, a little bit more aware that even people who are successful, has you know, success obviously can be even a, a, worse, a worse catalyst for mental health problem, mental health problems. Um, but, you know, for people, someone like me who, yes, has had tons of success, a lot of notoriety, um, I still had issues and everyone has issues. And that, that's the song I wrote with Nathan Chapman, Pushing a Rock. That's exactly what that song is about. That song is about, you know, using the metaphor of the, of the Greek myth uh, of Sisyphus, pushing a rock uphill. And when it rolls down, rolls, if it rolls back down on you, you can't give up. You just got to roll with it. You got to figure out another way, another strategy. And that's what that song is all about. And when they were asked, they asked me about in November and I had that song, it did, the synchronicity was perfect. It just seemed to be 
the, the right song for the right moment. And it spoke, uh, you know, in on a, hopefully in an artistic way about what November is really about. And I like that a lot because so often we think you're either mentally healthy or mentally ill. There's no gray area. The truth is it's this continuum. We, where we fall on the continuum varies from day to day, moment to moment, yeah. depending on what's going on around us. And we have choices that we can make about how to take care of ourselves. One last question for you. How do you take care of your mental health these days? Um, I do. Um, I, started, I started doing yoga and I've, I've always meditated, but I started doing yoga very seriously during COVID when I was at home. Um, and I always wonder why the heck did I start that 30 years ago? But nevertheless, it's been amazing for me. Um, it's a ritual. I do it every morning. Um, first thing I do when I get out of bed. And it's, um, that's been a huge help. The other thing I do is I, I love to go on uh, hikes and bike rides um, by myself. It gives me a chance to think. It gives me a chance to um, recalibrate a lot of things. Uh, I think it has a lot to do with the oxygenation that happens in the brain. Um, I think clearly and I can come back to my everyday life, work, uh, you know, uh, demands with a, with a different perspective. So that's my, you know, it's kind of my therapy, really. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. And John Oates, thanks for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I'll give you my take on John's strategies for reinventing yourself. Here are three of my favorite strategies that John shared. Number one, do something tangible to signify the new you. John shaved his mustache as part of his reinvention. Despite being known for his facial hair, he took a chance and got rid of it. But doing so was a tangible reminder that he was entering into a new phase of his life. There's just something about getting a new hairstyle or a new hair color, swapping out your wardrobe, or just getting a new style of glasses that could help remind you, and maybe everybody around you, that you're entering a new phase of your life. So while you don't need to physically transform yourself, changing your appearance just a little bit might be a solid reminder that you're doing things differently. Number two, think about what you want going forward. John didn't just passively wait to see what happened next. He talked to his therapist about visualizing the life that he wanted moving forward. He had to think about what he wanted to do in this next chapter of his life. Who did he want to be? Who did he want to spend time with? What did he want to spend his time doing? He took a break from being in the spotlight and he stopped performing so that he could focus on creating the kind of life that he wanted to make for himself. And for a long time, he spent time living a simple life that included riding his bicycle and living in the mountains. It's tempting sometimes to just want to sit and wait for whatever opportunities come our way. But when you do that, you miss out on the chance to create the kind of life that you really want to live. Number three, create a solid foundation for yourself. John spent a lot of time figuring out who he wanted to surround himself with, what habits he wanted to adopt, and which habits he wanted to avoid. That's how you create a healthy foundation for yourself. And once you do that, you can probably reinvent yourself in lots of different ways and still live a happy life because the core of who you are doesn't change even when you live a different lifestyle. Reinventing yourself in a healthy way doesn't mean that you have to abandon everything about yourself and you don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. It just means shedding some old habits that don't fit anymore. If you grew up believing that you were a loser, the new version of you might be proud of who you are. Or if you've always called yourself socially awkward, you might reinvent yourself as a friendly person. It's up to you to decide how and when to reinvent yourself. So often I hear people say things like, well, that's just who I am. When someone points out that they're quick to lose their temper or that they've been confronted with a bad habit. 
But every time we declare, but that's just who I am, we lose out on an opportunity to grow stronger and become better by reinventing ourselves. So those are three of John's strategies that I highly recommend. Do something tangible to signify the new you. Think about who you want to be going forward and create a solid foundation for yourself. To learn more about John and to hear some of his music, check out his website, johnoats.com. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.